Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is an honor to be back with all of you. Hope you're having a, a wonderful summer. And for those of you here in Arizona, and uh, it is uh, sweltering. We've had record heat for God knows how many days, over 110. And, uh, you know, you see, for example, I just saw yesterday the, a, a record number of people at the gym. And almost uh, by far and away more than January 2nd after <laughs> new resolutions are made. Because there's not much to do outside that would be safe. And hopefully you're listening to podcasts. If you're walking on that treadmill, riding your bike, whatever it might be doing, uh, whatever you might be doing in, inside and or with your family, thank you for joining me. This is the place that I think is one of the rare places you can come to look at what's happening in the world of Islamic reform, American security, patriotism, the war against jihad, and everything that doesn't fit the mold of the politically correct, the intersectional or the identity politic. Without ado, today I want to talk about the misnomer of Indonesia being a moderate country. Again, as if I haven't said that enough, the bottom line is, is it's, it's very, I think, educational to realize that even the so-called democratic moderate Islamic nations might have some redeeming virtues, redeeming characteristics, but a place for reform is not even close to what it could, what that reform can happen here in the West. Second, there's been some scholars in Saudi Arabia that have been normalizing relations with Israel, that have been openly rejecting Holocaust denial. All very, very good moves moves forward, moves toward possibly moderation. But again, I want to inject some cautious optimism. I want to inject the realities of what you should be looking through rather than simply the change of the window dressing. That I'm not trying to take away from the import of it. It is a, it is a magnificent development, but at what cost? And also, is it most importantly... And when I say what cost, these are dictators and thugs and other things. So it's it's ephemeral, if you will. And thus, is it real? What makes it real? The ideology is what makes it real. So let's talk about that. First, in the Muslim-majority country of Indonesia, the AP reported that an Islamic preacher was under fire. Under fire, why? Over the unorthodox views unorthodox views these the indonesian police have brought blasphemy and hate speech charges against the head of a controversial islamic boarding school and what did he do well there was public uproar over his teachings including the unorthodox treatment of women and the use of hebrew panji gumalang head of the el zaytun the Olive School in conservative West Java province 
was named a suspect by police on Tuesday when national official Tujuhandani Rehajo told reporters that he faces that he faces a maximum 10 years in prison if found guilty of blasphemy and hate speech. Remember, I talked to you about the mayor, the Christian mayor that similarly tried to talk about the similarities and the moderation of Islam when he quoted the ability of Muslims to marry Christians and others, other assimilation principles and he was then also punished at the time, a few years back. Founded in 1996 and home to roughly 5,000 students, the boarding school has caused a stir with practices like allowing men and women to pray alongside each other and women to become preachers, which are uncommon in the world's most populous Muslim-majority nation. Indonesia does not follow Islamic law, and the country has a tradition of pluralism and quote-unquote moderate Islam. Although more conservative interpretations of the religion have gained ground since the fall of the authoritarian leader Suharto in 1998. And it's interesting that uh, Indonesia's Islamic clerical council said that some of Al-Zaytun's practices were a wrong interpretation of the Quran. Oh, okay, so their, their interpretation is only one. That's classic radical Islamic authoritarianism or theocracy, if you will, in this supposedly secular nation. In June of 2023, it was investigating the school for misguided religious practices. Panji, 77 years old, defended the school, saying in a recent interview with Metro TV that women and men were equal, according to his interpretation of the Quran. Rights groups have slammed the use of the blasphemy law in Indonesia, which they say curbs religious freedoms in a multi-faith country that only officially recognizes six religions. The case has shook some of the pluralistic foundations of former Jakarta localities. And former Jakarta governor Ehok Tajaya Punama was in 2017 jailed on what many considered trumped-up blasphemy charges after he warned voters not to be swayed by politicians using the Quran for political campaigning. And that's the mayor I was talking about. Andrea Horsarno of Human Rights Watch said that Al Zaytun was the latest example of discrimination against minority views. And I like that comment actually. Discrimination against minority views. God, if only we could apply that in this so called era here in the West of wokeism where identity politics supposedly is in the name of minorities. And the reality is, is the real the real discrimination of minorities both in the west and the east occurs with people with divergent with rare with reformist thinking with modern thinking that dare to speak truth to power that is really what should be the new wokeism but i would never call reform-minded thinking wokeism but you know what i mean 
If a Muslim cleric is accused of committing blasphemy against Islam, the report from the AP goes on to say that for promoting women's rights, something must be terribly wrong with both Indonesia's blasphemy law and the mainstream groups, he said. So, you know, I think ultimately, and this was a Reuters report, sorry, if uh, AP I think was involved, not sure. But at the end of the day, it is important here. We're talking about equality of men and women. We're talking about praying next to each other. Oh, such blasphemy. Yeah, even in the West, we don't see that. I, of, for example, here locally in Phoenix of the 11 mosques, I don't think any of them do that. Nationally of the 3,000 mosques, I don't know of any that publicly talk about doing that. So you can probably count them on one hand. So it is, it is a minor, minor, minority opinion. Now, what do I believe? You know which mosque does pray men and women next to each other? Uh, Mecca, the largest mosque in the world, inside the most authoritarian regime in the planet. Why is that? Well... Again, when we talk about, and that's especially at Hajj during the pilgrimage, it's because there's millions trying to circumambulate the Kaaba that are participating in religious rituals, that families go together in order to keep the family together. They are allowed to pray next to one another, men and women. So the the theology that they interpret is that it is an exception because of the specific, unique situation of the Hajj specific but yet it's fine do you see mass sexual deviance do you see a, a distraction from prayers which is what supposedly all the salafis and jihadis say would happen if men pray next to women it's absurd and to say that women could not give the khutbah the, the sermon is absurd also does that make any sense I reject that and that does not make me some kind of flaming liberal Muslim. Still believe strongly in my beliefs. Strongly held belief in God and the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, conservative tradition. And it's interesting. You know, I talked, I think I had a podcast a, a year or two back about my own orthodoxy. It's not my personal orthodoxy, but what is an orthodox Muslim? Sunni means orthodox, but orthodoxy to me is the fact that you believe in a certain set of rules and you follow them compulsively in your life. Now, if those are moderate interpretations, you could still be orthodox and moderate. Moderation is always something that is in the eyes of the beholder when reflected against more extreme, more black and white, more literalist interpretations. So orthodoxy can never be described in a vacuum, but simply as a reflection of that which is more extreme. And ultimately, my sense of orthodoxy, I embrace orthodoxy because to me it is about not being hyper-secular, not being about the Western sexual revolution, that revolution of, of that borders sometimes on, on rejection of the family, the nuclear family, the respect of our parents and generations, the, the humility and, and importance of integrity and character, that revolution that is almost sometimes 
beyond even Marxism in which everybody supposedly to the point in which property rights don't matter, economics don't matter, it's all socialist and that type of bizarre liquidity of, of identity in which it's not about meritocracy, that we don't have competitions in which some do end up being better than others in certain activities and certain intellectual battles. So, again, this sense of orthodoxy and conservatism has to do with the reality that I accept what I believe is God's creation. Yes, we are all equal before God. Yes, we are all equal as guaranteed by the rights of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights does enumerate many of those principles to which we should adhere as sentient human beings. And yes, we have free will and the ability to make our own choices autonomously and reject or accept any faith or any idea. But we are also believers in the rule of law, and that rule of law is based on a system of reason, a system that has a separation of powers and ultimately ends in a court that will decide after a debate in our adversarial system what the ruling is and then we can appeal etc so this is an important part of what orthodoxy is now you can decide some of that in religious arbitration or you can do so in secular courts and civil courts but what's happening in Indonesia is not secular, is not liberal. This is authoritarian theocracy. And this is the smothering of one of the key leading elements of moderation and liberalism and reform, classical liberalism, which is the protection of the equality of men and women to pray next to each other, to, to develop religious facilities and norms that are equal. Now, I understand that there are large religious institutions outside Islam that also reject the clerical leadership of women, that also reject having men and women pray next to one another, and that does not make them necessarily pre-modern. Now, all I can speak for is my own beliefs in Islam. I'll let other faiths have that battle within their own community and their followers. I will tell you that within Islam, it is, to me, to my mindset, a red flag, a firewall against modernization, that you need to be able to accept the equality of men and women, that ulama, the scholars, as that Arabic word means, of Islam, have to welcome an equal value, women's beliefs about the interpretation of their Qur'an and our Qur'an, as men's beliefs, and if they can equally interpret them, then they should be able to become scholars, respected scholars that can give sermons. And thus, if we have equal beliefs with them, then why would we separate at prayer? So, boy, I think, you know, the two, these two elements that were talked about in this Indonesian school principal that may go to prison and now is locked up because he had the temerity to have a school that, that, that protected that, 
is is such a sentinel example of what's happening and what should be happening in the Muslim world, which is fighting back. And the West should amplify these things through social media, through documentaries, through reports, and through helping build a groundswell. But see what kind of traction this August 2nd story got from Reuters around the world. The so-called reformers in Saudi Arabia didn't touch it. And on and on. There's been little blips here and there. Our Clarity Coalition, I believe, is part of the hope for the future of the principles of equality in Western modern thinking. It is a coalition. Clarity stands for Champions for Liberty Against Radical Islamist Tyranny. Clarity. And it includes not only Muslims, but non-Muslim supporters who are against the jihad, who are believers that one of the primary threats against humanity and national, international security is the Salafi jihadi movement and its Islamism, if you will. And ultimately, that is the mindset that will counter and lift up the voices like this school principal in Indonesia. Without them, there will be no significant reform let's talk about reform in saudi arabia for example recently there's been a lot of positive talk about the normalization the normalization of saudi arabian diplomacy of economic interactions and acknowledgement of the state of israel as part of a domestic transformation and and now is coming the question from eminent leaders in America like Robert Satloff at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy about how will that affect U.S. policy and will the Biden administration help allow that to move forward or will it stand aside and just let it happen rather than become part of it and be part of history because there's no doubt that the normalization of that recognition of Israel in that both the words being articulated, the, the pictures being embraced between MBS and Netanyahu and, and the beginning of the economic sharing between their countries is, is not only revolutionary, but will, will shift. It will certainly have a shift in the cultural demonization against the cultural demonization that has so long plagued the narrative against Israel in the Middle East. Because Israeli reality, the truth of what's happening in Israel, has never had a chance across the Arab world because Arab dictators have used, in a Machiavellian sense, have used Israel as a scapegoat for their own tyrannies. And thus, so easy to demonize Israel, so easy to claim and create a sundry of different conspiracy theories against the only secular democracy in the Middle East, that of Israel, and create them into a surrogate of also Western demonization, that somehow they are a forward position for the great Satan of America. 
and this is not only Saudi history, but Iranian history and Khomeinist radicalism and be it Shia or Sunni radicalization, it is about first and foremost the demonization of Israel. And it's not just their tyrannies, but the Islamist movements here in America that call themselves Palestinian rights advocates, that call themselves BDS movements, boycott, divestment, and sanctions about basically destroying the economy of Israel because they use language not befitting of the reality of Israel, which is it is a democracy and a a thriving free market country. But no, it is about conspiracy theories, and that's beginning to change. There was the Abraham Accords that were ushered in by the Trump administration with a number of countries, including Bahrain and the Emirates, that began the process of normalization and actually signed accords to that. And there's been the question of, will Saudi Arabia follow? Will Saudi Arabia be the next? And as the, as the protectors of the Grand Mosque, it would have huge impact on the narrative against Israel. So this preface was really important because I wanted to make sure that you understood that I'm not minimizing the importance. And Saudi Arabia has, as Bob Satloff and the Washington Institute points out, it has its own benefits to gain as it builds this NEOM half a trillion dollar, if not more, city in northwestern Saudi Arabia, 90 miles 90 minutes from Israel. It's going to need Israeli and Western support and positive imagery and public relations in order to succeed in this huge investment as it becomes a post-petrol economy. Wow, I don't even... Again, that's what the, that's what the uh, uh, think tanks are saying. Now, the reality is... is my personal opinion is I don't see them becoming a post-petrol economy. Uh, maybe they're trying to do that, but uh, I find that a bit uh, humorous. And the reason I find it humorous is all of their products that are not related to petrol are from the West. They're bought. They are imported. They don't. Of the 70 to 80% employees they they send their kids and 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 uh, through their opulent wealth to be educated in the West, and they come back, and they don't produce anything. What products are Saudi products that are being sold globally through free markets and trade that are Saudi Arabian produced? There's no stimulus for creativity. There's no stimulus through their own markets for new ideas unrelated to petrol. So therefore, it is hard to fathom a post-petrol economy, but maybe their grand planning through Jeddah and others is trying to bring outside economic investments into Saudi Arabia, which is what NEOM is all about, and trying to make a thriving city in the middle of nothing. As they have 
you know, my grandfather, I've told you this probably before, but my grandfather used to say that the, the moment the Arab world will begin to grow out of its current morass of corruption and morass of dictatorship and inhumanity will be when it loses the resources below the ground, when it's dependent on natural resources goes away and they have to begin to use the natural resources that God gave us between our ears. And they've not had to do that. But I will tell you that the recent moves, now there was this op-ed by the head of the Muslim World League, who I've also been critical of before, who seems to have had a epiphany in the past few years, as the Muslim World League was one of the global radicalizers of, of Muslim children and youth for decades. And now, a little pre-MBS and now into MBS, it has become this uh, front for moderation. And I say front because, listen, moderation, when it comes to especially those of us that are heaped in Islamic debates and theology... Moderation is about theological reform, reinterpretation, and an acknowledgement of the error of the previous interpretation, but not just the error, but the explanation, the proof of why it was erroneous. Not just by a blanket fiat of a change of interpretation. That's not good enough. And this is what the Saudis are doing. Sheikh Mohammed al-Isa, the Secretary General of the Muslim World League, wrote an op-ed for CNN and said that in January 2020, I led a delegation of more than 60 prominent Arab Muslims, including 25 religious leaders on what was our, Jew what was our Jewish hosts called a groundbreaking visit to the notorious Auschwitz-Birkenau Nazi death camps. Passing through the infamous gates was a visceral, emotionally arresting experience that managed to both transport me back in time and sharpen my mind on the future. For it was here that 1.1 million people, the vast majority of them Jews, were murdered during the Holocaust. And it was here that I reaffirmed my commitment to fight intolerance and hate in all its forms. This visit, according to Elisa, was our moral obligation and an overdue sign of solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters, with whom we must tackle the many injustices and enmities there are in the world. Indeed, all the world's major faiths, Christian, Judaic, Hindu, Buddhist, and, and Hindu again, have at their core a commitment to peace and justice that starts with recognition of the struggles of our fellow travelers. Now on the cusp of the 78-year anniversary of the liberation of Medjenek, 23 July 44, which was the first of the Nazi camps to be freed by the Allies, we must ask ourselves, does the truth the Holocaust continue to set hearts and minds once blinded by ignorance, fear, and prejudice free. Does the truth of the Holocaust continue to set hearts and minds once blinded by ignorance, fear, and prejudice free? The honest answer is that while Muslim understanding of the Holocaust is important to bringing lasting peace to the Holy Lands, Holocaust ignorance and denial remains a worrisome trend that only worsens with the passage of time. And then he goes on. He goes on to talk about building bridges. Talk about the program in Indonesia with Jewish, Christian, Muslim children 
and the G20 Summit of Nations in Bali, Indonesia as the R20, Religion 20, an engagement group aiming to leverage the power of world religions to tackle pressing global challenges. So, listen, it is, it is, I think, embarrassing as a Muslim that this is even an issue. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to Muslim leaders who will privately tell me and other the others engaged in private conversations about the need to condemn Holocaust denial. And yet, when you ask them publicly to reject it and tell the Muslim communities how evil and corrupt it is to deny the genocide that happened against the Jewish community globally during World War II by the Hitler, by the Nazi regime of Hitler, is, is just mind-boggling. And I'm sorry, it is not only embarrassing, it, and, and the comment from Elisa here that it is overdue, how about beyond overdue that it is evil? How about beyond overdue to say it's corrupt and it is fraught with conspiracy theories and an anti-Semitism that was fueled by the ideology that his own regime in Saudi Arabia spread. But none of that is articulated in his op-ed. It is just, I'm sorry, again, I will say it, it is, a, it is a bigotry of low expectations to say that somehow Muslims accepting the fact that the Holocaust was a truth is somehow an achievement. Okay, yeah, it's progress, but um, it is nowhere bringing them into normalcy, nowhere bringing them into dem democratic, western, liberal, modern thinking. <laughs> I had a panel with some scholars back, oh, probably a decade ago, in which one of, a good, one of my good friends who was a rabbi said that a, a local imam had, had told him from deep within his heart about how much he rejects Holocaust denial. And the rabbi asked him, he said, well, okay, here, let's, let's pen an op-ed in the local newspaper. And the imam said, no, I can't do that. And he didn't have the courage of his conviction. Now, this imam certainly does. Elisa has gone beyond that weak cowardice that existed before. Now they're openly going beyond that. The Saudis also in the past few months have demonstrably removed a lot of the anti-Semitism that is within the interpretations of the Quran, the Muhammad Khan Quran that they have put out. And I was on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom for four years and my second term was as vice chair. We visited Saudi Arabia. I was there three times as part of a critical analysis, and as to why we listed them as one of the one of the world's worst offenders against religious freedom, and their textbooks and their interpretations, their Quranic tafsir and others' interpretations, if you will, was at the height of our list, and we we cited examples and 
USERF, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, has done that annually in its report on Saudi Arabia. So the removal now, finally, of these anti-Semitic comments are very important. But the interesting thing is you take the tafsir out and that still leaves without critical analysis passages passages in the Quran especially in chapter 5 uh, Al-Mahdi which is also the table or Mesa um, without modern interpretations of how those passages can be interpreted in a way that demonstrates equal respect for Jews, Christians, and all people of God as we do for our own people in, of Islam as Muslims? Or is there still exclusivity of pathway to God? Is there still a hierarchy that Islamic law provides for the protection of Jews and Christians, but as lesser people than Muslims because they don't follow Islam? All of these all of these very draconian 13th century interpretations have not been reformed. So you, you can't simply remove one interpretation without providing new ones that express a, a lens for the interpretation of all the passages that talk about Jewish tribes in the Quran that have been problematic, that so many people have talked about, that our scholars that have reviewed Quranic scripture and said, listen, there's this passage and that passage that talks about the beheading of this tribe and that tribe and others, and, and how do you reconcile that with modern interpretations of equality, with, with a faith that also allows Muslims to marry Jews, and and it says that they shouldn't change their faith, that they should not... A, a Muslim man who marries a Jewish woman would not ask her to change her faith so she could raise their kids as Muslims. Now, this all needs not only one, another podcast, but a whole course. A single passage would take a while to reinterpret, but that needs to be done if you are legitimately, especially in a country that is basically all about Islamic education, supposedly, and rules by Islamic law of the royal family. You can't just fiat these things into place. There has to be modern interpretations, or otherwise it's just window dressing, and MBS might disappear next year, and in comes a cleric that just puts that all back in. Unless you begin to create movements of people that believe in these interpretations. So, okay, let's say all of a sudden MBS wants to have a movement of people that believe in the reality and the integrity and the truth of the, of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. And how do you do that if the rest of the footnotes on Sharia still have elements of descriptions of pigs and monkeys and all this other stuff that is just offensive. You can't. It has to be a wholesale 
reinterpretation in which theologians give not only sermons about recognizing Israel, which is a great first step, don't get me wrong, but it has to be within a few weeks, within a few days, a talk about where these passages have been interpreted wrong, not just about the political state of Israel but and the reality of it in the 20, 20th and 21st century, but the religious respect and equality of Jews and Christians, especially as Abrahamic faiths with Islam. It's not being done. This is not what the Saudi reform is. And I get it that our current think tanks in Washington have are seeing something they've not seen in decades and they don't want to criticize it. But I can tell you that as a Muslim, I, it's my role to do that and speak the truth to this power, which is the Saudis. Because they have economic reasons for doing what they're doing. They have other reasons to make their window dressing appear like, oh, they're rebuilding the whole house. But the reality, the core, is still theocratic, is still anti-Semitic, and is still supremacist. The core still identifies an Islamic state. And are they beginning to develop what Saudi nationalism is versus Islamic state concepts of Sharia law? Will there be an opening of free markets to allow them to start to think on their own? All of that is yet to be determined, but will certainly be part of what I'll be looking for, for real, genuine reform versus diplomatic, pragmatic, utilitarian reform, not based in integrity, not based in morality, but based in the ends justifying the means. That's pretty harsh, I know, but isn't that what terrorism is, by the way? concept that the ends justify the means slaughtering people in restaurants and whatever it might be is if you can get political change through terrorizing them then it's fine so let's step back if the Saudi reinterpretation is a utilitarian mechanism to deceive the West is that real change it will be when they begin to sway the majority, when it becomes a cultural shift, not forced coercively, but, co but through rational debate, through open discourse, through an acceptance of humanity in a populist, viral sense, just like the Islamist and Salafi jihadists have wreaked havoc on the Muslim world. The top-down change will not be long-lasting unless they use bottom-up methods. And that will not be utilitarian. It will be based in truth because rational thinking. Now, will that allow them to keep power? It's, a, it's playing with it's playing with fire, isn't it? And that's why they don't want to do it. That's what they told us when I visited there was, oh, this is if we if we let freedom and, and free speech happen, 70 to 80 percent of the Twitter activity is radical Salafis and they will be like ISIS taking over Saudi Arabia okay well this is a truth that you've all produced and in order to defeat it you have to expose it and you have to defeat it intellectually and physically 
So if they create violence, you stand against it. If they debate these things, you expose it and debate it with countering arguments. Defeat bad speech with good speech. But no, that's not the way the mafia of the Saudi royal family works and the rest of the mafias across the Middle East from Assad to the Khomeinists. Well, a lot to consider. Some positive, some negative. But again, when we're anchored in freedom, when we're anchored in liberty, it's always so clear. And thank God we're America. Thank God for the U.S. Constitution. And thank God for the United States of America. We'll see you soon. Continue to stay safe from the heat. And we'll be back on Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio. See you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.